Welcome, everybody. Let's cultivate our motivation. Let's remember what the demarcation line is between dharma practice and worldly practice. So it's easy to forget what that is. So the demarcation is something that is involved in the eight worldly concerns, is considered worldly practice, and something done with a motivation that is not seeking only the happiness of this life. In other words, is not seeking the eight worldly concerns, is dharma practice. So that sounds very nice. But when we look at our actions, our daily life actions, so many of them are driven by the eight worldly concerns. Sometimes at a very gross level, sometimes at a very subtle level. But the attachment to the happiness of this life is very strong in us. Very difficult for us to think beyond this life and sometimes even beyond the present moment or the present day. That's how strong that attachment to the happiness of this life is. So it's very important to lift our view, lift how we see the world and our place in it, to go above and beyond just the happiness of this life, above and beyond I want what I want when I, don't, when I want it, and I don't want what I don't want when I don't want it. And forsaking that kind of attitude is really essential for generating bodhicitta. Because as long as we're just completely enveloped, thinking about praise and blame, fame and notoriety, possessions and the loss of them, nice sense experiences and horrible ones. As long as our mind is involved in that, how can we generate great love and great compassion and bodhicitta? When you really uh, put your mind into the eight worldly dharmas just for a minute and then think bodhicitta 
it's like the the two the energies of the those two thoughts just uh, don't mix. So let's conscientiously generate bodhicitta right now as motivation for sharing the Dharma this evening. And really have an expansive mind of wanting to benefit each and every sentient being. So there were some questions and so on from two weeks, two weeks ago, three weeks ago. (laughs) So several of them were from Singapore. Uh, But let me start with something else. Um, So Venerable Sankhikadra was listening to uh, the last talk from this series, uh, and I said that I couldn't find a refuge, a reference about here in solitary realizer Arya's creating, projecting karma. And so I had assumed that they don't, okay? And so she found some references that supported what I said. So uh, she was saying on the in the English translation of Lamram Chenmo, page 304, it says, In general, Aryas create and accumulate only virtuous karma. When I've got to give you a tip. Whenever something says in general, be careful. <laughs> because there's some, it means that not everybody. Okay. So in general, in general, Arya being Aryas create and accumulate only virtuous karma, yet stream enters and once returners, so those are Aryas in the fundamental vehicle, may accumulate non-virtuous karma. So they've realized emptiness, stream, stream enters and once returners, but they may still accumulate non-virtuous karma. However, such aryas do not accumulate karma that would impel them into a cyclic existence of either happy or miserable realms. So in other words, they may create non-virtuous karma, but none of it is stronger to become the propelling karma that propels a rebirth in, uh, in samsara. Um, although these aryas are often uh, born in samsaric realms. The stream enters, they are born in uh, the desire realm. 
the Tibetan the Sanskrit tradition says, I think, for seven lives and the Pali for three lives. Yeah. So they're born in the desire realm. That sounds funny. That would have, it seems to me. Oh, you know what it is? They don't create new karma to be born in those realms. But there's another paragraph that it's the old of the old karma that they created that hasn't yet been purified, and it can get ripened by the uh, craving and clinging in a set of uh, 12 links, and that will propel them into rebirth in the, let's say, in the desire realm for the stream enters or into the form realm for some of the others. And also uh, on that page, it says, once you have perceived reality, that is selflessness, you may still be reborn in cyclic existence by the power of a former karma and afflictions, but you will not accumulate any new karma that can impel such rebirth. Okay, we got it. But they can still create non-virtuous karma. It's just not strong enough for that. Yeah, It's kind of amazing to think that that people who have realized emptiness can still create non-virtue. But, you know, if uh, when you realize it in meditation, no, that's impossible. But when you come out of meditation, yeah, if the awareness of emptiness slides, then the familiarity with the afflictions can make them come up again. So got to be careful. Okay, then these technical questions from the Singaporeans. So they're asking, first of all, about the word bumi, which usually translates as ground, yeah, or literally it can be earth, but usually ground, okay? So the question is, in some books, it refers to realms uh, while it also refers to the ten bumis, the ten grounds of bodhisattva paths. Okay, so I've never seen bumi refer to realm. That doesn't mean it doesn't. I just haven't seen it that way because they usually talk about three realms, the desire realm, form realm, and formless realm. Okay. So uh, I'm not familiar with that. They may have been reading a book from another tradition or from a Pali tradition. I don't know, but I, I haven't seen that. So the question is, I assume there is no direct relationship between the two uses of Bumi. So, yeah, <laughs> I'm not familiar with one of them, so I can't say there's... Uh, you know, a direct relationship or not, okay? But Bhumi usually, uh, when they talk about it, it is a realizer. It's equivalent to, to path or vehicle. When we hear path, we hear, we think of something you walk on or something outside that you go along. Actually, path is a consciousness, okay? When we hear vehicle, 
like fundamental vehicle, bodhisattva vehicle, we think of, you know, you get in some little, you know, your little red, red wagon and, and you go along. No, vehicle, again, means a consciousness. Yeah. So here in this one, Bhumi is uh, their realizers. Yeah. So when we talk about the fundamental vehicle, they talk about eight Bhumis, okay? And so these are realizers of the stages of the Shravaka and solitary realizer path, okay? So, uh, so that covers the approachers and, and abiders, yeah? Of the, the fundamental vehicle uh, includes both the Shravakas or hearers and the Pratyaka Buddhas, or, or solitary realizers. So if they're the same, I usually just say fundamental vehicle. Yeah. So, so they have uh, eight boomies, so to speak, and these are realizers of the stages of the path. And it starts with uh, one realizer that's equivalent to the path of preparation, and uh, seven of the eight are realizers of the of the hearer path, and the eighth one is the realizers of the solitary realizer path. Yeah, because the uh, the whole thing of abiders, approachers, and abiders, many people say that doesn't apply to the solitary realizers, only to the shravakas. So. Seven of the eight boomies are for the, so the shravakas and the eighth one for the solitary realizers. If you want more information, look in Courageous Compassion. Under, you know, there's a whole section about the stages of the path. Okay, so then the next question is, bodhisattvas can enter to any of the realms after they attain the eighth boomy? Question mark. Actually, uh, bodhisattvas from the time they attain the path of seeing, which is the first bhumi, when they attain the first bhumi, they can create manifestations that can be in any of the realms of samsara. Okay? They're not born there, but there's manifestations that can be there. But in terms of the bodhi, uh, bodhisattva themselves, um, you know, for the benefit of their own practice, they prefer to have a precious human life or rebirth in a pure land because that is the best, uh, has the best circumstances for practicing the path. Okay? So, and then the, the question was, okay, bodhisattvas, but then what about the arhats and shravakas? Can they go, can they enter into any of the realms after they uh, attain arhatship? Actually, uh, it, it depends who, uh, who you're asking. <laughs> yeah, because according, for example, to the Theravadas, the arhats attain arhatship, um, Usually most of the stories are them doing it in a human form. Maybe they can do it in a form realm. But uh, the human realm is really better, you know. They, nobody wants to get 
too enamored with with the upper realms. Um, with the, some of the form realm concentrations, yes, they're good for meditating on emptiness, but not the formless realms. You're too you're too uh, spaced out in your concentration in the formless realms. Okay, so the um, the Theravada says that once the arhats attain arhatship, then uh, they pass away. I mean, they they live the rest of that lifespan. Let's say they're born as a they were born as a human being, and at, in a human body they attained um, they attained liberation. Then they pass away, and uh, their consciousness ceases. Okay, some people say that. Yeah, some Theravadas disagree with that. And in general, the Mahayana disagrees with that because they say that uh, everybody can attain full awakening and that the conscious, there's nothing to make the consciousness cease. But the Arhats, um, you know, would never, once you're an Arhat, you don't want to get born anywhere in samsara. And you're not interested in making manifestations for the benefit of sentient beings. Okay, so they're not going to go to, yeah, enter all these different realms. They're just going to live out their life as our hotship, as our hots, and then from the Mahayana viewpoint, enter into a long-term meditation on emptiness and just focus on the meditation on nirvana. Yeah. Okay, then the next question is, uh, are, the, are the first seven bhumis in the formless realm? If you're talking about the uh, bodhisattvas, no. The bodhisattvas do not have any particular wish to be born in the formless realm. In the form realm, maybe they could be reborn if there's a chance to, to benefit sentient beings. But in the formless realm, they say that the people just, uh, they don't have any forms, but uh, they have a moment of, of regular consciousness when they're born, and then they enter into uh, their, this meditative stabilization according to the formless realm they were born in. And they're in that until they die. And then there's one other moment of conscious awareness of, you know, what's happening to me. Uh, And so for bodhisattvas, you know, to be born in that kind of thing, it's very peaceful, but bodhisattvas have have no wish to do that. It isn't going to um, help their meditation on emptiness, help develop their their compassion. It doesn't help them benefit sentient beings. So uh, unless there were in some way it sets some example or is for some in you know unique situation, they they normally wouldn't uh, be in the formless realm. Okay, the next question was, there are 51 mental states. When we study low rig, they talk about 51 mental states, but there are 84,000 afflictions. So are the 84,000 afflictions part of the 51 non-virtuous mental states? First of all, 
not all 51 that we study in low rig are non-virtuous. Okay, the six root defilements are non-virtuous. The 20 secondary or auxiliary defilements are non-virtuous. Actually, not even all of the six root are non-virtuous. Ignorance is neutral. Yeah, view of the personal um, uh, personal identity is neutral. Okay, and then you also have the uh, 11 virtuous mental factors, and you have the 10 object ascertaining and the 10 omnipresent. Yeah, so no, not all of those are, all 51 are non-virtuous. Okay, they say there's 84,000 afflictions. Okay, but then you say, oh, but well, there's only six root afflictions and and uh, 20 auxiliary afflictions. Like what happened to the other 83,900 and whatever? Well, there's many ways to categorize them, you know. So even when we, when we look, uh, you have the six root and then the 20 auxiliary non-virtuous ones. The auxiliary non-virtuous ones are, are usually subdivisions of some of the, the six root ones, or they pertain to sometimes just one of the root ones, sometimes two of the new root ones. So there's some overlap here, okay? Uh, and as we notice, there's many uh, emotions or, uh, you know, afflicted views that we have that are not listed in the 51. The 51 is a, is a list that was compiled because the, the great masters thought that these are the ones that uh, are most important to know about if you want to be free of samsara. Okay, now we may say, but, 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 but how about ang- anxiety, you know? Yeah, isn't that one important one? How about guilt? Yeah, we can think of a whole bunch of them. Yeah, or or friendliness for the virtuous ones. How about that? Yeah, well, you know, there can often be ways to incorporate these other ones within the 51. Yeah, and see how they they pertain. Uh, Or, you know, his Holiness always says that the human mind is the same. So what people felt back then, people always feel and think think now. But there may be, I think, some difference in terms of proportion, yeah, because of the uh, the environment in which you live. So we, gen- you know, I mean, we live in a stress-producing environment, yeah. I'm sure in ancient India, they, it was stressful too. I mean, if you had a crop failure, how are you going to survive? No, that was pretty stressful. Uh, you know, but the, the things we get stressed about now, uh, they didn't have those circumstances then. Yeah. And probably some of the things they got stressed about, we don't have those same circumstances. So there may be, uh, you know, I mean, even now, uh, when we look at the various cultures in the world, 
You know, I'm sure that all of them have uh, people experience the, all the afflictions at one time or another in their life, but which afflictions are most prominent in which cultures, or even in a certain culture, um, you know, individuals are very different. So which afflictions are most prominent, that's going to differ too. Okay. Then they ask, um, what's the difference between defilements and afflictions? So, um, defilements, I think sometimes the word is used to include afflictions and cognitive obscurations, and sometimes defilements seems to indicate just the cognitive obscurations, whereas afflictions are afflictive obscurations. So the afflictive obscurations are what prevent us from attaining liberation. But even after you attain liberation, there's still the cognitive obscurations that are on the mind stream that need to be eliminated. So those are also, those are considered defilements. Yeah. But sometimes it seems like, like, uh, afflictions are moved into that category too. I haven't seen a, yeah, I'll say this, maybe Venerable Sangha Kadra will find this. I haven't seen a clear definition of defilements. Yeah. And sometimes it's translated as stains or taints or, yeah, there's, yeah. Okay, so that's that. Are you good and confused now? Okay, so we left off. It, I think it's good, you know, you hear this, you may not understand all of it. By the time we get to, to volume six, where we're studying the grounds and paths, then you'll see why studying the grounds and paths uh, is really important because it's a roadmap that tells us, uh, you know, what we what understandings we need to have and what realizations we need to have in order um, to attain certain states. Yeah, And that, that's very helpful to have because it gives us, uh, you know, the, if you, they always say, you know, when you're at that level, check with your teacher to see if it's a genuine realization. But just knowing the grounds and paths alone can give you some idea of what's happening. Uh, and I think, you know, that book, what is it? Um, after the, after the ecstasy, the laundry, I think why some of the people get tangled up, uh, when they have quite extraordinary experiences in meditation is because I think if they had studied the paths and grounds, that would have helped them understand what was happening in their mind, you know, because every extraordinary experience is not a realization. And every feeling, every uh, feeling like we're becoming one with the universe is not a realization of emptiness. Yeah. And every time you see Tara, in your meditation is not, it is 
not necessarily an actual vision of Tara or whoever it is. Okay, so that's why knowing the paths and grounds is important and why checking with your teacher is important. Yeah, because I don't know, kind of unusual experiences, uh, they happen all the time. Yeah. I don't know if I've ever told you this one, but this this is a good one. It's a very good example, okay? So one, uh, one young man came to me, and he was telling me that sometimes when he meditated, you know, he would, he would be, he would lie down and he would just have these incredible feelings of bliss and like bliss rising up and going down in his body and just incredible bliss, you know, and he was wondering what that was. So I had no idea. So I called Geshe Zopa and I described what this young man told me to Geshe Zopa. And Geshe Zopa said, that's just sexual energy. You know? And he had thought maybe it was, yeah. Anyway, so... um, (laughs) Yeah, and when I was doing Vajrasattva, the the man sitting opposite on the other side for me, he was having some kind of bliss going up and down his spine too. And um, and he went to see Ling Rinpoche. And Ling Rinpoche didn't make a big deal about it. He said, just enjoy it and do your meditation. <laughs> <laughs> you know, some, something like that. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, there is, when you get into Tantra, they talk about the great bliss, but, you know, not every experience of bliss is the Tantric great bliss, yeah, because, well, anyway, we won't get into all of that. There's The word bliss has many different meanings in different situations, yeah. Okay, so now we're coming back down to samsara. We're on the second link. We finished with the first one of ignorance. So now we get to the second one, which is not any better than the first one. Okay, so ignorance was the root of samsara, and formative action is the result, the immediate result of ignorance. Okay, usually you have ignorance and then some kind of affliction, and then formative action. But affliction doesn't get its, I was saying this last time, I think, it doesn't get its own number. Yeah? There's just one and two, and some people put afflictions with one, and some put it with two, so it's kind of at the one and a half stage. Yeah? But there's definitely afflictions in there. So, the book says... Formative actions afflicts migrating beings because they plant polluted karmic seeds on the consciousness. So each one of these, uh, you know, most most of them uh, have a single sentence just talking why about how sentient beings are afflicted by that particular link. Yeah. 
So when you think of it, yeah, I mean, this is it. Formative actions, our actions in samsara, afflict transmigrating beings. Transmigrating beings are the ones that go up and down in samsara. They transmigrate from one place to the next. Yeah. That's in the uh, the chant that we, we sung at the ordination. Chant. It's migrating in the three realms. One is not able to sever attachment, give up attachment and enter nirvana. That is the true way to repay kindness. It's quite a Profound verse, actually, when you think about it. Okay, so what is it that keeps transmigrating's transmigrating beings transmigrating? Formative actions, and specifically craving, which is a form of attachment. Okay, so these keep transmigrating beings, they afflict us, because these actions plant polluted karmic seeds on the consciousness. So there could be a positive state of mind that's planting this polluted karmic seed on the mind stream. And I don't know, it just sounds funny to say, to think about a, a positive formative action or a virtuous formative action afflicts transmigrating beings. That's still- because it's polluted. It's still, it's virtuous, but it produces rebirth in samsara. Yeah? I've had many discussions, Geshe Dadol and I, you know, one time, some of you may have been there. We were in India talking about this kind of thing. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's a virtuous action, but because it grew out of ignorance... It is still a cause for samsara. It's not a cause for liberation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just the juxtaposition of afflict, afflicts, transmigrating means. That's because samsara is undesirable. We are afflicted in samsara. Yeah, if samsara were were great, then. Nothing would afflict us in samsara. But just being born in samsara itself, even by the force of a virtuous karma, you still are subject, usually, to all three types of dukkha. You aren't free of that. You are afflicted by it. And especially the the dukkha of pervasive conditioning. Yeah? So that's why it says afflict. Yeah, we used we like to think, oh, I work so hard and I create some virtue, and that should ripen in liberation. Uh, mm -mm. you know, not if it was created under the influence of of ignorance. So formative action is the intention. Or the mental karma. Remember, we we 
talked about mental karma in the in volume two. So formative action is the intention, the mental karma, or the physical or verbal action that is newly formed by first link ignorance. So it says first link ignorance because not all ignorance is the ignorance of the first link. Yeah, there's many kinds of ignorance, yeah. But the first link uh, ignorance will produce some, usually some kind of affliction, or it could be a virtuous karma too, but it gives rise to the formative actions that leave the seeds on the mind stream. Okay, so formative action produces, uh, or actually the... It produces the mental and physical aggregates of a future rebirth in cyclic existence. So that's the function of the karma. Yeah. We often, the karma, when we use the word karma, it actually means action, that action that we did. But very often when we talk, we say the karma ripens. It When we use the word karma that way, it means the karmic seed ripens or the, um, the uh, has ceased, ripens, okay? So in the context of the 12 links, um, so again, in the context of the 12 links, formative action or karma refers specifically to volitional actions that bring rebirth as their result, not to all actions in general. Okay, so what is an example of a karma that would not produce uh, rebirth in samsara? Yeah, so one that doesn't have the the four branches. Okay. so the 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 what we call throwing karma or propelling karma that produces the aggregates of the future rebirth okay and here it's specifying it's a volitional action so it's one that is done where with a with an evident intention it's not an accident yeah so we hear stories about how there's one story about Nagarjuna. Uh, yeah, he died because somebody cut off his head. And the, the story behind that was in a previous life, he was cutting um, the field. And with his scythe, he cut off the head of an ant. And that created the karma that caused him to be, to be killed by his head getting cut off. I asked His Holiness about that karma, (laughs) that story for this. And he just said, you know, uh, uh, we don't understand all the the subtle things about karma. You know, it was an ask the Buddha. Yeah. Um, Because, and he said these kinds of things are hard to understand. They aren't, you know, it's a special condition. Because here it's, you know, usually 
something. It's a volitional action, not, not an accident. Okay. Yeah, there's a few stories that they tell about karma that don't seem to really follow the rules of how they describe how karma acts. I won't go into all of them now, but I did ask about them. (laughs) Okay. Um, So these polluted virtuous and non-virtuous intentions are expressed through the three doors of our body, speech, and mind in our deeds, words, and thoughts. Uh, So we're creating karma all day long. We're not necessarily creating second link formative action all day long. So formative actions are either virtuous or non-virtuous. Neutral mental states do not have the force to produce a rebirth because they lack a clear intention. So that makes sense, doesn't it? You don't have any strong reason for doing this or that. So there's no energy or power to what you're doing that would propel the mind into a rebirth. Okay. You're sweeping the floor with a, with a neutral intention. You know, there's not going to be a big karmic result about that. If you're sweeping the floor and you're really mad because you weren't it's not your turn on the rota or because somebody else puts you on the rota more often than other people do or because somebody else dumps some stuff on the floor and they're leaving it for you to clean up so you're really mad when you're cleaning the floor then you know you have to you would have to be pretty mad and then you would create that kind of karma to propel a rebirth Okay, so it's it's a warning to really watch our mind because we we can get sucked into things and uh, that are not advantageous. The completion of the action produces a karmic seed that has the potency to bring a rebirth. So you have to have the object the motivation, the action, and the completion of the action. So after you have the completion, that leaves the karmic seed that has the power to produce a rebirth. This karmic seed is placed on the third link, causal consciousness. So we'll get to the third link soon. There's actually two parts to to consciousness. One part is causal consciousness. One part is resultant consciousness. But it produces, it places the seed on the causal consciousness. When nourished by the eighth and ninth links, craving and clinging, the karmic seed will blossom into the tenth link, renewed existence. which in turn gives rise to the next birth. Both the seed and the resultant aggregates are ethically neutral. So this is interesting. You know, the, the formative action to propel a rebirth has to be virtuous or non virtuous. Okay. The karmic seed yeah, the seed of non-virtuous action, the seed of virtuous action, 
the karmic seeds are neutral. They are not positive or negative, although they are seeds of positive or negative actions. The result of the seed, the result of the karmic action that is virtuous or non-virtuous, is the four or five aggregates that somebody uh, of the next rebirth. Those aggregates are also neutral. Okay, Our body is not non-virtuous. It's foul, okay, but foul doesn't mean non-virtuous. It is foul, isn't it? Yeah. But it's non-virtuous, just having a body. That, I mean, this thing, is, it's, not, it's not an intention in the mind. It's just a bunch of vegetable goo. And that vegetable goo is not virtuous or non-virtuous. Or non it's not virtuous or non-virtuous. Okay. Prasangikas say that in addition to the seed, the action also produces a having ceased. Remember we did this in second volume? A functioning thing that indicates the action happened and has stopped. Like karmic seeds, having ceased are neutral. Another neutral one. But you have all these things that are neutral that are very important in the process of rebirth. Yeah. So not everything in samsara is non-virtuous. Like karmic seeds, yeah, having ceased are neutral. The having ceased of an action and the karmic seed are activated by craving and clinging and lead to renewed existence. Okay, so renewed existence is the tenth one. Very often, uh, the Tibetans translate it just as existence, but that's kind of confusing. Yeah, um, yeah. The Theravada you call it renewed existence, and that's and that's I adopted that term here because it makes a lot sense, a lot of sense. You are being reborn in samsara, so you're you're renewed. Your your reservation in samsara is renewed, and will keep on going. And uh, nobody's going to cancel it but you, okay? And the computer won't uh, break down and forget that you have that reservation, okay? So second link formative action, our mental intentions and physical and verbal actions, is the direct cause of a future rebirth. It is a path of action with all four branches complete, which projects a fortunate or unfortunate rebirth. Okay, so you may remember when we studied the ten non-virtues, not all ten are actions, but all ten are paths of actions. Yeah, the last three, coveting, malice, uh, maliciousness, and uh, wrong views, those are afflictions. Yeah, but they are not actions, but they are paths of action. And it's called path of action because 
those actions lead to a rebirth in samsara. Yeah? So the path of the action takes you into that rebirth. Other karmas that do not have all four branches or that are weaker, you know, like some of the branches may be very weak, even though they're complete, yeah, uh, they, those karmas, yeah, other karmas that do not have all four branches or that are weaker, complete that rebirth by influencing other conditions and events, such as our experiences, the environment we inhabit, um, the, our habitual physical and verbal mental tendencies, why we're born to the parents we're born to, why we're born in the country we're born to, into all those kinds of things that are not the five aggregates of the rebirth, but are different aspects of that rebirth. Okay. So those, those are not propelling karmas. Yeah. They're called completing karmas because they complete the rebirth. The term formative action may also be translated as conditioning action, implying that it creates or composes something else, in this case, a future rebirth. Yeah. So there's many times where the word, uh, the, the Pali or Sanskrit word means conditioned, but they often, different people translate it as compounded, or um, what else do they translate it as? Well, here, formative. Yeah. But it's this whole, it's what it's doing is emphasizing the point that in samsara, you know, things are conditioned. And because they depend on causes and conditions, and those causes and conditions are not stable and change all the time, then the results we live with are changing all the time. And so that's why there's no stability or security in samsara. And that's why another characteristic of samsara is that it's dukkha or unsatisfactory. Okay. Conditioning action excludes unpolluted actions and neutral actions that are incapable of projecting a new rebirth with polluted karma. So unpolluted karma is that they are conditioned things, but they're not called conditioning action because that term is specifically emphasized referring to samsara. Formative actions are of three types, demeritorious, meritorious, and invariable. Okay. Now, I'm the first to admit the term merit is um, confusing. Yeah. It's not, it's, it's not an easy term. Uh, I don't know about you, but when I think my first thought about merit when I heard about it, was gold stars on your test, okay? 
in for in third grade or whatever. So it it doesn't refer to that. You know, it um, refers to some kind of positive potential that can bring a beneficial or good result. It is essentially virtuous karma. That's what merit is. Okay, so but first he's going to talk about demeritorious karma. So demeritorious karma is created under the influence of ignorance of ultimate truth and the ignorance of karma and its effects. So those two are the two main kinds of ignorance, but there's many other kinds of ignorance too. But demeritorious, you have both of them. You're grasping inherent existence, and you have no, at that moment, you have no idea about the law of karma and its effects. Your mind is totally out to lunch, not considering uh, the, the ethical dimension of our actions. Yeah. And so, you know, sometimes I wonder, we all say we believe in karma, but how often do we stop before we act and think about karma? Or do we just, or are we knee-jerk, you know? An idea comes in the mind, boom, we go do it without thinking uh, of what kind of result this is going to produce and if the action is virtuous or non-virtuous. And that leads us into a lot of problems. Don't you think? My generation was all about being spontaneous. Yeah. We don't want to be... We're fed up with rules and regulations and all this stuff and have-tos and shoulds and ought-tos. We want to be spontaneous. Yeah? So an idea comes in your mind and you just do it because you're free. You know that, that? Yeah? Okay? Uh, but we, for us, spontaneous meant impulsive, didn't it? You know, some idea comes in your mind, you have that impulse, boom, you do it. Yeah, no consideration for either the effects in the next minute, the, in the next hour, the next day, the next year, or the next life. Yeah, it's just, I feel like doing it and I'm being spontaneous. Nothing is holding me back. And I'm sure we could all go around in a circle and tell stories of how spontaneous we've been and what results have come from it. Okay. So, you know, that's why, you know, we may say we believe in the law of karma, but we don't always stop think about it. Okay. So demeritorious karma is created under the influence of ignorance of ultimate truth and the ignorance of karma and its effects. The motivation is one directed towards our own selfish happiness in this life. Okay, so it's involved in the eight worldly concerns. 
created only in the desire realm. You only create this kind of karma in the desire realm. Yeah. Demeritorious karma leads to an unfortunate rebirth as a hell being, hungry ghost, or animal. Here are the disadvantages of the eight worldly concerns become obvious. While it may be difficult to overcome our habituation to them, it is possible. Thank goodness. By gradually steering our minds to more virtuous intentions, we will definitely decrease our misery now and in future lives. Yeah, so that's kind of our project. It just start decreasing the amount of non-virtue or demeritorious karma that we create. Okay, then the second one is meritorious karma. So that is the virtuous karma created in the desire realm again, okay, that leads to a fortunate rebirth in the desire realm. So both demeritorious and meritorious karma result in a rebirth in the desire realm, okay? So you're going to say, but what about getting born in the form and formless realms? Hold on, we'll get to that, okay? So such uh, meritorious karma created under the influence of first link ignorance and the virtuous mental factors is... uh, Okay, so all of that is created by Buddhists and non-Buddhists alike. Okay, so in other words, you don't have to be a Buddhist to create virtuous throwing karma. That question comes up a lot because sometimes when you first hear about karma, it sounds like, oh, you know, eight worldly concerns. Well, if nobody, if you don't know about those, you're going to commit them. And so does that mean that people who are not Buddhists are never going to commit virtue? Well, no, they commit virtue. They can commit, you know, engage in virtue. To create this meritorious karma, our motivation must be free from the eight worldly concerns that seek our selfish happiness of only this life. Our motive may be to live ethically and with kindness because those are our values. So there's many people who are not Buddhist who want to live an ethical life and live with kindness. Someone who believes in rebirth may be motivated to take a higher rebirth with wealth and power. Although this is a worldly aspiration, it is free from attachment to the happiness of only this life and is a dharma action and meritorious karma. And people usually hear that name, but, 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 but they're selfish. They're thinking about wealth and power in a future life. That's non-virtuous. Well, yeah, yes. Their, their motivation is limited and it is concerned with their own benefit, but it's not involved with the eight worldly concerns. It's not, I want what I want, what I wanted in this life right now. Okay, so it's considered a virtuous uh, motivation because it is free from the eight worldly concerns. Even though what those people are wanting is an eight-worldly concern in the future life. 
it's free from the eight worldly concerns in this life. Okay. Someone who believes in... Okay, I read that. Although the... Well, I'll read it again. Someone... Because <laughs> the next sentence follows. Someone who believes in rebirth may be motivated to take a higher rebirth with wealth and power. Although this is a worldly aspiration, it is free from attachment to the happiness of only this life and is a dharma action and meritorious karma. Dharma practitioners who seek liberation or Buddhahood want to have a series of higher rebirths in order to have a good basis to accumulate all the causes to fulfill their spiritual aims. Their actions done with that motivation are also meritorious karma. Okay? So the most urgent thing for us in terms of planning what we want to create the, the causes for is our next life. That's the most urgent thing to plan for. Because if we don't get a good rebirth, yeah, and we're born in the lower realms, then it's going to be very, very difficult to create the causes for good rebirths. Yeah, just ask our precious kitties. You know, you're born in that realm, very difficult to create virtue. Huh? So our, our most urgent, you know, need is to create the causes so that we have not just an upper rebirth, but a, a upper rebirth with all the causes and conditions that enable us to practice the Dharma. Okay, so some of those causes and conditions have to do with the environment we're born into. Some of them have to do with our own inner way of thinking and our own disposition. So that's where you get into the meditation on the eight worldly, um, the eight freedoms and the ten fortunes. Okay, because we, we really need that good rebirth. So planning, you know, deliberately creating the causes to have a good rebirth and dedicating for that purpose is fine. Yeah. If you create virtue, yeah, it's better to dedicate for all the way for full awakening, because if you dedicate for the long, the highest aim, then some of that karma will enable you to get a good rebirth along the way. Okay. Okay, now the third one, invariable karma. So this brings rebirth as a deva, a celestial being, uh, in the former formless realms. These actions are created under the influence of first link ignorance by a mind that has attained a form or formless realm meditative absorption that has not degenerated before the person dies. Okay, so meritorious karma is created in the desire realm, you know, and is leading to a desire realm rebirth. Invariable karma, you can create it in the desire realm, but it is, uh, your, your body is in the desire realm, but your consciousness is in one of the, uh, the form or formless realms. Okay, so you're meditating, 
you know, and you, uh, you, you know, attain concentration on the fourth dhyana. And then if that, the level of that concentration doesn't degenerate before you die, yeah, and you're meditating like that at the time you die, then that karma will ripen and produce a rebirth in the fourth dhyana. Yeah. So it's called invariable because if you have a concentration at the level of the fourth dhyana, you're not going to get reborn in the third dhyana, and you're not going to get reborn in one of the formless realms. So it, it's invariable. Your concentration is that particular state, and that is the state where you get reborn. So the same thing with the with the um, formless realms, you may attain as a human being the formless realm uh, on the base of nothingness, and uh, that is where you're going to get reborn if the, con- the concentration doesn't degenerate before you die. Yeah. So this is um, this this is where a lot of non-Buddhists get stuck because they're they're very uh, focused on creating this kind of concentration. And uh, they don't think about meditating on emptiness. You know, it's not, maybe it's not even taught in their system. And they think that, you know, wow, these, these, yeah, when you experience these realms, that they can be very blissful or they, uh, they actually say that that uh, the feeling of equanimity is even more pleasurable than the feeling of bliss when you attain these levels of concentration. And so, you know, they attain those levels, and some, you know, according to what we read, um, some of those people think they've attained uh, liberation. And then when they die... And other karma starts ripening and they start having visions of the bardo in their next life. Then these people freak out and they go, Oh, they may think, Oh, there's no such thing as liberation or the path I followed was, was wrong or, you know, who knows? Yeah. But they they can get very upset, and I would think disillusioned if that happens at the time of death. Yeah. So that's why it's really important that when we meditate to um, to attain these levels of concentration, that we always have in our mind to use them to meditate on emptiness and to meditate on bodhicitta. That we're not attaining them just for the sake of having that level of concentration. Okay, so invariable karma leading to rebirth in the first three dhyanas where the feeling of happiness is present is motivated by a thought that is disinterested in lovely sense objects and primarily seeks the pleasurable feelings uh, born from concentration. Okay, so that's if you're aiming um, for for the first three dhyanas. Yeah. 
someone who has reversed attachment for sense pleasure and grown tired of the bliss of the first three dhyanas seeks the feeling of equanimity. Yeah. With this motivation, she creates invariable karma that brings rebirth in the fourth dhyana and the four formless realms. In these meditative states, the roughness of meditative bliss has been suppressed and the far superior feeling of equanimity is experienced. Okay. We usually think nothing's better than bliss, but here it's saying in terms of levels of concentration, the feeling of equanimity. There's many different kinds of equanimity. Not all of them are the feeling of equanimity. But the feeling of equanimity is more, pleasure, more pleasurable than the feeling of, of bliss or happiness. Invariable karma is so-called because it creates the cause to be born in that specific meditative absorption and no other. It may be the first, second, third, or fourth dhyana of the form realm, or a meditative absorption of infinite space, infinite consciousness, nothingness, or peak of samsara, which is also called neither discrimination nor non-discrimination. And those four are in the formless realm. For example, a human being lacking dharma realizations who develops the absorption of the second dhyana and whose concentration has not degenerated before she dies will experience the craving and clinging of the second dhyana at death. These will ripen that karmic seed and she will be reborn in that very dhyana, not in any other. This it is in this sense that the karma is invariable. Okay? Is it true that once you're born in that realm, there's no way but down? You can't create karma to be reborn in the form realm or the, up the, or the formless realm again? You can create the karma to be born in a higher uh, dhyana or in a higher form realm. You can, Remember, yeah. we, we were discussing that when SK was here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I, she. So we have enough. You have enough awareness to have that intention to create that cause. In 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 the um in the the four dhyanas you do because in the four dhyanas you are not continuously in meditation. Yeah, I mean they they come out of meditation, they talk to each other, they go for a walk, I don't know what they do, okay? In the formless realm, yeah, it's, it's difficult. And I think probably from there, you're going to go kerplunk. Yeah, but that's my thought. I'm not, yeah. Okay. Each time we engage in an action supported by ignorance, that has a clear intention and is either virtuous or non-virtuous, we create the beginnings of a new set of 12 links. So that means within our consciousness right now, there are the beginnings of many, many sets of 12 links that have the first three of uh, ignorance, formative action, and causal consciousness. 
So many sets that start with those three that are waiting for the other ones to be complete and ripen into a rebirth. Which uh, karmic seed and having ceased ripen to bring the next rebirth depends on other factors such as the strength of the karma and uh, our state of mind at the time of death. Yeah. So there's all these karmic seeds on the mind stream. Which one ripens? Yeah, is going to be influenced by, you know, the strength of that karma. Remember when we studied karma, there were different qualities that made a karma strong or weak, such as the action was done repetitively. It was done with a very strong motivation. We really rejoiced after we did it. Things like there was no regret afterwards. Things like that make it strong. A new rebirth is not the sum total of all the karma we have ever created. Some people think that, like, you know, it's you just add up all the karma and then you get reborn and then uh, you, you, you have no more karmic imprints on your mind like a clean slate. Mm-mm. Yeah, we're not born as clean slates. Yeah. And you can ask anybody who has kids, you know, their kids come into life with personalities and habits and so on. Yeah. Okay, only one karma, or in some instances a few karma, determine the realm of our next rebirth. Yeah, so it's not the sum of all of our karmas that cause the one, the next rebirth. It could be one karma. It could be maybe two or three karmas coming together to produce that next one rebirth. Yeah, yeah and it, it can depend a lot, really, on uh, what's going on in our mind and in our environment as we're dying. Yeah. I mean, if you're dying in the hospital and you're in a double room and the person next to you is watching, I don't know, a Trump rally or a, or, or Spider-Man, you know, and you're hearing all of that and you're dying with that kind of stuff going into your mind, that's going to nourish a negative karmic seed. So that's why they say that it's all you want to have a, a very peaceful environment. Yeah. And not an environment where that is going to generate a lot of attachment or anger or regret or, you know, things like that. So, you you don't want to you don't want to die in a situation with all your relatives around you crying and begging you not to die and holding on to your hand and saying i love you don't leave i mean can you imagine the emotional turbulence that would cause in the person who's dying yeah or to have uh yeah and who knows what can go on in an environment. I mean, the, the people who die in battle, you know, what's going on around them? Do they have any chance to turn their mind to something virtu- virtuous? Or are they mainly angry? I, I don't know. It probably depends on the, on the individual. You know, we can't say. But 
But, um, yeah, that must be quite a difficult rebirth, I think. How karma created to be reborn in the desire realm ripens may vary. The ripening of karma in the desire realm can be affected by the person's thoughts just before death. Okay, that's one thing that affects it. By the prayers of spiritual mentors. Okay. By the circumstances of the prospective parents. And the occurrences in the bardo, the intermediate stage between death and the next life. So if conditions change yeah, upon a mini-death, so when you're born in the bardo, you have a bardo lifespan of seven days, and then there's a mini-death, and then you get another seven days if you haven't taken rebirth. Okay, Some people are born in the bardo, and wham, bang, the next instant, they're born in their next life. All the conditions come together, and there they go. Other people, it's going to take them up to 49 days. Okay, I asked in an interview, why 49 days? And um, Venerable Lakdor, the translator, <laughs> said, His Holiness was there, uh, because 48 are too few and 50 is too many. <laughs> yeah? So, and that makes sense, and that's the only answer I know. <laughs> okay. Why 49 days? Yeah. Okay. Um, but, you know, if circumstances change, like... Uh, What's an example? Okay, somebody uh, had, at the time they were dying, okay, they're just, they're thinking about their precious cat. This is a warning for all of us, you know. My precious cat, you're so sweet. I want to be born as a cat so I can be with you, you know? No, I was, I was, let me tell you, I was in the car one time with one friend who loves dogs. I mean, this woman does so much rescue work for dogs. And we drove past some place, and there was a dog in the yard, and she said, wow, what a good-looking dog. And I just shuddered because that is like the kind of thought that would make the karma to be born as a dog ripen. You know? Oh, being a dog is good-looking. You know, it's like, you know, you're attracted to that. That's scary. I don't know about you. I don't want to be reborn as a dog. Yeah? But, okay. So let's say you have some karma to be reborn as a dog, and that karma ripens at the time of death. Yeah? And then uh, a lot of your friends do prayers and practices for you, and dedicate the merit for you, and somehow that the do not ask me to explain this in scientific terms, but somehow the energy, the virtuous energy of their prayers and practices, you know, affects your mind stream, and it can make a virtuous mental, a virtuous karma ripen, yeah, or 
You can have the karma to be reborn as a dog, but then something shifts while you're in the bardo, and uh, instead of being born as a dog, you're born as a pig. Okay? So in the first example, the first, it's two different karmas. The first karma was to be reborn as a dog. The second one was to, that in fact ripened, was to, let's say, be born as a human being. Those are two different karmas. The karma to be born as a dog will never ripen to be born as a human being. Okay? Because only virtuous karma can ripen to give you the aggregates of a human being. So that's not going to change. Yeah. If the karma of a dog, it may change so that it ripens and you're born as a pig or a turkey instead of the dog, but it's still going to be in that same realm. Yeah. It's not going to change. If it's the same karma, it's going to ripen in the same realm. You know, to ripen in a different realm, it's going to have to be a different karma that actually ripens. Okay. So karma to be reborn as a human could ripen as rebirth in Amitabha's pure land if at the moment of death the person, either by her own power or by the influence of, of a spiritual friend, directs her mind towards Amitabha and his pure land. Okay, so that is a, that's what we want to do. Okay, so to have direct the mind towards that rebirth, and it can make the, make the karma to be reborn and Sukhavati ripened. Contemplating the first two links increases our renunciation of samsara and motivates us to live ethically. And that's why we meditate on the 12 links, you know, because when you do, you really get a better idea of the situation you're in and you want to get out of it. Yeah, so it increases our renunciation. We become more interested in knowing about emptiness because the wisdom realizing the ultimate truth can eliminate the ignorance that is the root of samsara and bring liberation. And I forgot, actually where we stopped last time was on the reflections on page 164. So let's go back for those because I didn't read those. And here we're starting stopping in another set of reflection. Okay, so this was uh, the reflections after we did the first link. These are very good reflections to do. So first, observe your thoughts during the day and identify the causal and immediate motivations for your actions. So remember we talked about causal and immediate motivations last time? If you don't remember, start at the top of the page and or the end of the, the other page and, and read it again, you know, because that's, that's important to understand, too. Then, two, try to identify the ignorance of the ultimate nature. Then observe if misconceptions and instances of distorted attention arise. 
Okay. And then three, periodically during the day, stop and examine your mental state. Is it virtuous, non-virtuous, or neutral? Is it creating the cause for happiness, suffering, or neither? Okay, so these are are really actually quite important points because if we can learn to pinpoint what our motivations are, then we can figure out whether those motivations, those intentions are virtuous or non-virtuous. Then with, you know, our mindfulness and introspective awareness, we could see if distorted conceptions or um, inappropriate attention arises, creating stories about the situation. Yeah. And then if we are, you know, have that kind of awareness during our life, then when our, we start to engage in something non-virtuous, we can catch it right away. And we can immediately say to ourselves, I don't want to do that because I know what the result of that is going to be. And I don't want that result. And so that helps us to put the brakes on the mind that is starting to do something negative. Or if we're starting to do something positive, you know, we'll recognize that there's a virtuous intention of doing something virtuous. And then we will increase that and we won't let other things interfere with our practice of virtue. Okay. So this whole thing of being able to identify what's going on in our mind and then to cultivate that so that we are recalling it during the day, that gives us a tremendous amount of power, you know, to create the causes for the kind of future that we want to have. Okay. We have time for a few questions, not many. Yeah. And well, just before the, where we ended, could you give it an example or explain a scenario where upon a mini death in the Bargo, the karma that would bring a rebirth as a dog may become inactive and another karma that brings rebirth as a human being may, may ripen instead. What would stimulate that? What, what would be? Well, that was the example I gave of your friends doing a lot of practices and dedicating the merit for you. Yes. I'm trying to figure out how someone else can get your positive seed to ripen. Yeah. It's one of those things that you have to ask the Buddha. Okay? But all the Buddhist traditions talk about it. Now, I am not sure, yeah, the way I've explained it to myself is that somehow, you know, all these people are doing this virtue and directing the virtue towards you. Yeah. And so you don't have to hear it by the, by a telephone or read it on your inter, your email because you don't have those but the force of their good intentions kind of influences you in some way or another yeah um all the traditions do it something of course doing these kinds of practices also helps the living 
And I think often it helps the living more than it helps the dead. Yeah. But, uh, you know, if you have a very close connection with a certain teacher, yeah, and that teacher, you know, uh, does poa or something like that, then that can happen. But you need also to have created the karma for that to happen and to have that kind of close connection. You know, it's not just somebody who went to a POA course, you know, taking out their booklet and saying, hick, hick, pay, pay. <laughs> and then you go to the pure land, you know. Uh-uh. So clarify this um, karma to be reborn in Amitabha's pure land. Is it just uh, Sukhavati or is any pure land that you have directed your mind towards? Oh, it would be what it, whichever pure land that when you were a human being, you were pr- doing that particular practice and praying for rebirth in that pure land. Yeah, does that answer your question? Yeah. No, no. Uh, another quite popular pure land is Amogus, no, uh, Akshobhya's pure land. Yeah. And actually, uh, Geshe Tukten Pelsang, who uh, teaches about this, he, you know, that's where he, that's his main practice, you know, and if you go into his, uh, his room, you know, he has Akshobhya there. So he aspires for that, not Amitabha. Going back a few pages, Mm -hmm. um, on page 128, there's this sentence that I just can't get out of my mind and I don't understand it. So, um, so one, this where, says, 128. Yeah. Okay. Where? Well, I just cut it out a few weeks ago. You're looking for the paragraph that says, similarly, self-grasping isn't always manifest in our minds. Yeah. So going back a little bit further down, during the white appearance, red increase, black near attainment, mm-hmm. and clear light of death of samsaric beings... Self-grasping is not manifest. Yeah. So at that point, Venerable, we're heading out the door, but there's no self-grasping. So how does craving and clinging The craving and clinging ripen earlier, earlier. before the white white vision. And so before that happens, we're already on our way because these things have kicked into gear. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So the karma, yeah, the karma ripens before you get to those more subtle states of mind. So that's why, also, too, if you die and one of your dharma friends is around, and they they talk about the dharma to you, they remind you of your practice, of your teacher, all these kinds of things then, you know, you may be, you're out of it because you're dying, but it goes in at some level and that can really help you. Or even maybe you're not totally out of it. You're still, you have conscious awareness and somebody's, you know, telling, you know, reminding you of your practice. That is very, very, that's very good, you know, because then you can generate, uh, you can, generate a virtuous thought and direct the mind towards a good rebirth. So it sounds easy, but 
you know, during our regular life, we're often just so much on automatic, aren't we? Yeah? But to, to think that, you know, suddenly when we're dying and all this, it's chaotic, that all of a sudden, oh, yes, I remember a virtuous thought. <laughs> yeah? So in Christianity, they say, you know, if on your deathbed you you take Jesus as your whatever, you go to heaven. Uh, Buddhists say, no, it's not, you know. That's what? That's straightforward. I mean, it's not like it's that yeah, Buddha, yeah, Buddhists say it doesn't work like that. You know, first of all, because you we are creatures of habit and chances are we're going to die the same way we live, you know? So if we uh, die, you know, if we live our life and we're just reckless, the chance of having a virtuous thought at the time of death is, you know, not so good. But if, if we are doing our practice and, you know, really trying to to abandon non-virtue and practice virtue, then it's you know much easier to have that kind of thought at the time of death. And if you have a Dharma friend around who reminds you, then that's really good. So let's dedicate. And let's all... I would, you want to say let's all dedicate so we have good deaths. But for us to have a good death, we have to have a good life, you know? And a good life means a life in which we are creating virtue and abandoning non-virtue. Yeah. A good life is not getting everything we want. <laughs>